0: What's up, everyone? Welcome to Dipped in Tone. I'm Rit. I'm Zach. And we're back with uh, technical issues again, which is why I'm on my phone and AirPods. But we're going to make it work.
1: It, lo- it looks great. It looks great.
0: It's cool how you I- can just, like, uh, you know, not change anything with your setup, and then log on, and then nothing works.
1: You know, I always used to... my So I worked with my dad the majority of my, my life until I moved to to Nashville and like every week he'd say my email broke and I'm like how did your email break He's like, I don't know, but it's not working. And I'm like, Did you touch something? And he said, Absolutely not. And then I'd get in there and he totally did. But sometimes yeah. it wouldn't, it would just break on its own. I don't know. There's gremlins in everything, man.
0: Yeah. So, uh, anyways, sound quality and video quality. If this is your first time watching Dipped in Tone, this is not typical of how we do things around here. But, you know, the show must go on. Uh, right. So, what's new with you? How are things?
1: Things are good. I, uh, did, did I have this this lighting set up last time? No, I although I did see it. Well, I've person. been making a lot of YouTube videos on the Mythos ah, YouTube page. Sweet. Thank Rhett's been helping me. But uh but this was a big thing. I i I've put a lot of sound deadening and Rhett informed my light decisions, and that's been great. But in other news, we have completed the chorus. Um and the the prototype enclosures have arrived, just a few. And man, we're excited. We're gonna do like the whole the pedal, the, like the pedal release, that mm. that normally happens on the internet, where everyone has one. We're gonna, well, not everyone, but we're gonna send them out and and try to to do the damn thing the way it's supposed to be done. Apparently, just don't, just don't
2: do
0: too much because there's there's one thing well, when it's you know this is like uh it's the the Fender Acoustasonic debacle that no, happened no, no. a few years <laughs> ago, where it's like all of a sudden there's forty YouTube channels that all drop their Acoustasonic videos at the same time, and yeah. it's like too much.
1: You know? No, we, what we're we're hoping to do is to say, "Hey, this is the release, and whenever you can post it around this date, that's fine." And we'll have our video, and you know, hopefully, every you know every uh, news outlet will have the press release and all that stuff. So, uh, check Premier Guitars website for that. But um, yeah, just excited to to finally get something across the finish line that's taken a long time, a lot of a lot of hard work. Uh, making a chorus is is non trivial, so mm. we got there. And look at those but leading lines, you?
0: man! Like your your shot is framed so well. You got I,
1: to... I, I put that wire in like a holder, so now oh, yeah. you don't see a big black like power cord hanging there. Yep. Um. But what's been going on with you? You've been you've been like busy. I've been texting you been and
0: busy, busy, no, busy. no response. And well, okay. So are my uh, our our friends from the Netherlands were in town with us for the last three weeks. Um, mm-hmm. Tyson, Sarah, Tice, you may know as Roofman, the artist I've been working with for the past couple of years. Uh, they came over for like part vacation, part workshop. I produced his uh, upcoming EP that we recorded here. It's the first like full length project that I've recorded here at the studio, even though it's not done. We're already using it. Um, it was really cool, man. I, I had a we, we live tracked most of it. Um, did most of the core tracking to tape on the TaskCam 388 here, off to my left. Um, and I'm really proud of it. So it's in mixing now, and we're going to get this thing out quick. Um, we're in fact, like, stuff's going to mastering like next week. So mm. turnaround is really fast. So uh, shameless plug. Um, go follow Roofman on all the socials, Roofman underscore official, I believe, and then he's on Spotify and Apple Music anywhere you get music. Um, he's a, you know. He's an up-and-coming artist making really cool, like indie rock stuff, and I'm really proud of what we did here. So, uh, but yeah, nice. it was burning the candle at both ends there for the last three weeks, and I'm just now kind of like getting back to normal. So,
2: yeah. yeah.
1: Well, uh, before we get into the episode, we got to thank all our patrons over on Patreon. If you're interested in supporting the show, getting all exclusive access that is available by being a patron, go to the link in the description, and you can sign up. Check out the tiers and support the, support the show, support the channel and, uh, get some, you get discounts on merch and we, oh, oh my gosh, we got some merch things happening oh, very soon. I'm so we're, excited to show you guys. This the is actually know. like,
0: yeah, yeah. The patrons know this is actually something we're not, we're not just like, you know, drumming this up for the, for the sake of, of teasing you. We're, yeah. we're actually making moves in, in the, uh, behind <laughs> the scenes here to get not just some dipped in tone merch, but, uh finally trying to get some merch going for my main for my channel and and the studio as well we've we've branded my studio and and everything so yeah merch merch is coming
1: yeah and so if if you're a listener and you haven't checked out the discord or the patreon recently too uh go check it out all the pictures of the merch ideas that i've whipped up are on there let me know what you like what you don't like and we'll this is going to be a community effort it's going to be a collaboration so help us out here but yeah check out our patreon and uh check out what uh, you can do to help the show. Also check out sweetwater.com. They are the sponsor of today's episode of Dipped in Tone. Go there, peruse all their great wares. Uh, Inevitably, there's going to be something cool on sale. And, and one thing I like to do, and I don't know if I'm sure you're privy to this rep, but maybe not everybody is. They have a lot of great demo and B-stock Gear on there Mm -hmm. that you can get for actually like really good prices. All the, um, Uh, Rlx phone that i got from my back wall behind the camera here was from sweetwater and i got a screaming deal on it and now my space sounds better and that's awesome so yeah it actually does
0: sound way better walked in there last week and i was like oh my god it's a massive
1: (laughs) it's it's actually dead so yeah yeah, it's very exciting but yeah but check out sweetwater.com link in uh, description and um yeah see what you can get for your space
0: all right we got a really special guest today the one and only Warren Haynes is joining us, and um, I'm. This is uh, this is another one. We've been having moments like this here on Tipton Tone recently, which is like, how did how did we get here? How how are we right. talking to this person? Because Warren Haynes, as you'll hear uh, in a second, has been a massive influence on me from from is... basically when I started playing guitar. So uh, yeah, really excited. Without any further ado, here's our chat with Warren Haynes. Warren, what's up, man?
2: Uh How's everybody doing?
0: Well, I'm trying to get over these uh, technical issues here, but I think we're up and running. So Complete. thanks for thanks for joining us today, man. Yep. It's a huge honor to have you on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I want to start by telling you. So a couple weeks ago, I did a video on my channel, and I talked about how when I was first starting to play guitar, like thirteen years old, two thousand three. That's when the Dave Matthews Band Live at Central Park record came out, uh-huh. and you basically taught me how to solo early on. I would go home from school every day, and I would put on that CD specifically Cortez the Killer, and uh, just sit there and shed and listen to it and play over the top, and like try and copy your licks and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, man, it's it's for me, it's a really cool thing to get to talk to you today.
2: Well, my pleasure. That was uh, quite a memorable night, without question.
0: Well, yeah. Welcome. Welcome to the show. I was listening to, uh, to your newest album, the New Government Mule album, a little bit earlier today. It sounds awesome, man.
2: Thank you. We recorded that record at the same time that we recorded Heavy Load Blues, which was our previous record, which was our first and only blues record. Uh, but it was all due to lockdown and not being able to tour, not being able to travel when we finally could be around each other, we decided to go make two records at once uh, and it was quite an experience
1: so when when you get that inspiration to do that is it, are all these songs just kind of like have they have they been thought about before or are you just kind of flying off the cuff and, and writing things in the studio how does how does that creative process work for for you and and the rest of the band
2: Well, I had been writing. During the whole lockdown situation, I had been writing more than I've written in, in years and years, um, which was, you know, a, a forced opportunity. Um, so I had all this material that I was dying to record. Um, it just seemed like the logical next step because we didn't know when we were going to get back on the road at that point. And we had had a meeting about the possibility of doing a, a blues record, which had been on the horizon for a long time, but we had never uh, kind of pinned down when it was going to happen. So everybody was like, well, let, let's, let's do this blues record we've been talking about. But I said that I only wanted to do that if we could do the two records at once because I had so much new material that I was, was itching to record. So we had to find a studio where we could set up two different sets of gear, and set up in two different rooms, one to make a record that sounded like an old blues record and one to, to make a government mule record. And uh, we found this studio in Connecticut called the Power Station New England, which is a, a replica of the old Power Station in New York City. And it was perfect. It, uh, we set up all our normal mule toys in, in the big room with the high ceiling. And we set up a bunch of vintage gear, small amps and old guitars and a separate organ and a separate piano and a tiny little vintage drum kit uh, in the small room. And so every day we would go in around noon and work on Peace Like a River till about nine o'clock. Then we take a a little dinner break and step into the blues room next door and play blues the rest of the night uh, with no headphones and, and just like we were uh playing in a tiny little club uh, i was singing through a monitor uh, we uh everything was live the vocals were live uh all the solos which i, I tend to do in general anyway but on that record 100 percent.
0: so how did that work i mean so you mentioned like you're doing you know the, the government mule record during the day and then switching to the blues record and i was that difficult for you to sort of shift gears or like as a player or mentally, or did it just kind of naturally flow?
2: Well, that's kind of the key question uh, that was in my mind before we started. But what we soon realized was that after dinner, playing blues was like the perfect thing. We could stop thinking. Right. We, weren't, we weren't thinking about how the songs went, you know, or arrangements or uh, anything we had rehearsed. We were just playing blues like we were, like it was midnight in a, in a little club somewhere, you know. And mm. it worked out uh, great. It turned out to be the right solution. It was kind of like uh, shutting your brain off, which is what you kind of need to do to play blues anyway. Uh, and blues is meant to be played late at night. So it worked out uh, really perfectly. That's so, awesome, man.
1: What is your go-to blues guitar rig? Because, I mean, you've you've been known for playing all sorts of you know, fantastic guitars over the years, but if you if someone said, Hey, you got a blues gig and you just gotta grab a few things, what 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 are those things for you, Warren?
2: Well, I have this uh this old Gibson Vanguard, which has one fifteen in it, uh, that is really great for that. Uh in the studio I used to use a lot of Gibson Skylarks, which has like a, a six inch Jensen speaker. I have three of those, that uh, one with tremolo, one with a external speaker out, and one just normal that record tremendously well. Uh, for this record, I used the Skylarks. I used my little Alessandro recording amp. I used a, a Supro. I used uh, a Gibson Gold Tone amp, uh, which, incidentally, is the amp that I played with Dave Matthews at, at Central Park. Uh, I used uh, also maybe an AC thirty, but that might have been too big for this record because we were really quiet on the blues record. Um, but I would take three, usually three vintage amps and combine them. Have one of them in the room with me, and one or two other ones out in the in the room being mic separately, and it was just fun. I was plugging guitars into amps that had never been plugged into each other before you know, I used some old Dan Electros, some old Epiphones. Uh, I used my 59 Les Paul. Uh, I used uh, uh, like a late 60s SG that belonged to Alan Woody. Uh, A bunch of different stuff, but the surprise factor was part of it. You know, plug in something into an amp and go, oh, that's a cool sound. That might be good for such and such, you know. So there was a lot of spontaneity in that way. I didn't go in there knowing what guitars and amps i was gonna play
0: man i'm so glad that you brought up the skylark i i bought my first skylark it's a 64 ga5 t like almost 10 years ago now and i think i paid 275 dollars for it at a shop in charleston south carolina which is no longer there and the prices now have have gone way, way up. I think people are finally starting to catch on to what incredible little amps those are. What, uh, what models or what years were you using? You said you had a tremolo and a non-trem.
2: These are all the, uh, I guess what used to be white, the, the, the blonde ones. I have a a brown one that, uh, is a few years later, completely different. Uh, -hmm. it's so clean. It sounds like lay down Sally. Uh, that super clean kind of sound, but all the old 50s ones uh, are super nasty. You know, it's one uh, one knob, except the one yep. that has tremolo has, has two knobs. Uh, I just love the fact that you can't screw it up. You know, it, it's it, <laughs> you, you plug into it and you go yes or no. Uh, and anything with single coils sounds fantastic. You know, Les Paul doesn't really work great through a Skylark. It's a little too fat. Uh, yeah. But I've been working on a, a version with Gibson. I'm not sure if I'm even supposed to talk about it, but w- we've been working on a version that will also accommodate Les Paul.
0: Man, we got the Uh-oh. scoop here. Yeah. That's, uh <laughs> I mean, anything more you want to tell us about that, that you're you think you might be allowed to tell us? Cause that's really interesting.
2: Uh, well, hopefully in the next few months, there's going to be a couple, uh, there's a signature amp that we're working on and There's also some old uh, reissues that we've been kind of uh, putting our heads together about because Gibson uh, loves the fact that I use those old Gibson amps because I I really love recording with old Gibson amps. And uh, I've been encouraging them to bring back a lot of that stuff, you know, the Falcon, uh, the Skylark, Uh, all those amps have, have a cool thing.
0: I completely agree. What, In your opinion, why do you think those old Gibsons, specifically the smaller amps, record so well?
2: You know, I don't know. They were just doing things right back then. You know, like the everything that those guys put together back then, They, the, the people behind it had so much knowledge. And, of course, some of it they were flying by the seat of their pants. A lot of it was experimental. But – they knew what they were doing and it's you know a lot of people say it's it's the materials and the materials do have some to do with it quite a bit i would say and the the reissues that we're working on now are using fantastic materials where they're going to sound like the old amps Uh, but you know that was just such a special era stuff had not gotten loud yet and so everything was designed to be captured at a, a low volume which meant yeah. old ribbon mics and stuff could pick it up without uh too too much of an issue and something about the mics being made at that time the guitars plugged into the amps being made at that time the combinations were just fantastic
1: i i think that there's uh, people tend to forget how long Gibson had been making amplifiers because they'd been making so many electric instruments for so long well before Fender. And well, when Fender came in, they, they kept trying to make things louder and cleaner. And Gibson, for the most part, kind of stayed along the same path. And a lot of those amps, even well into the later era of the, you know, the original stuff was really aggressive. And they, they do break up and have just a really musical amount of overdrive that some of those fenders just don't have at all
2: yeah and you know i think that the quest to make things cleaner is really what screwed everything up Yeah, Uh, (laughs) because you know those those old players back then they could get cleaner by turning the volume down and it Mm -hmm. it was cool it still had some grit but when you tried to make the all the way up sound clean then you had no headroom you had nowhere to go that's kind of been uh, a problem throughout rock history if if that's what we're talking about whenever they tried to make something cleaner they always screwed it up <laughs> yeah <laughs> if if we can
1: circle back a little bit to the the central park gig can you talk to us a little bit about the art of sitting in whether it's from just joining someone else's band or or hosting uh, that sort of situation. Can you talk about what it takes to to do that effectively?
2: Well, that's a a perfect example. I was on tour at that time, and and David called and wanted to know if I was going to be in New York. And I said, no, but I have a day off that day. I'll just fly in. So I flew in for the occasion. We didn't really have time to rehearse so to speak and we didn't know in advance what we were going to play so literally at our tiny little sound check rehearsal that we had uh he said you do cortez right and i said yeah and he said i've been doing it uh recently too you want to do that and i was like sure so we talked about who would take what lines vocally and uh We just winged it. That was the first time we had ever played it. There was no arrangement. Uh, We were just following each other in front of 100,000 people, and it was fantastic. It was really magical uh, in a way that we've done tons of versions, but it would be hard to top that, that first one because it was literally us navigating uncharted waters, and if you're up for it, Uh, and you're in the right crowd of people and the right song, you know, uh, that works. And I think sometimes it's hard for the innocent bystander to understand what do you mean there was no rehearsal? But certain types of music, you know, that's three chords. It's not like you're going to do something that sounds horrible, uh, it's just make it as musical as possible, and that's all about everybody listening and paying attention to each other, and there being some chemistry and, and mutual respect, you know.
0: That's so cool to hear you say that, man. I, I cannot describe like what an impact that particular performance of that song has had on me. I literally have listened to that hundreds and hundreds of times, and I went back and and listened to it again for the first time in a few years, a few weeks ago. And it's like, I still remember every single vocal line and, and parts of your solo that I transcribed as a kid. Like there's certain licks and things that you did and that, that have stuck with me and my playing that I still do, you know, 20 years later. And so, yeah, it's, it's crazy to hear that it was like just sort of a happenstance kind of, Hey, you want to come sit in and Oh yeah, you do Cortez. Okay, cool. We'll just do that. And you know, it, you might not have known it, but it it has had a massive impact on, on plenty of of players out there today.
2: Well, that that's really cool. And I, I love the, the organic quality of that because, um, I think it's even cooler that what we're talking about is how those moments come about. And they're usually in a way that's pretty different from what people might expect, you know, uh, I mean, there's no way you can orchestrate a 18 minute song or however long that song was. I I don't remember. But, you know, to try to rehearse something like that would kind of defeat the purpose. And I'm sure it would piss off Neil Young, which none of us (laughs) want (laughs) to do.
0: So you've you've been able to share the stage with some pretty incredible people over the years. I mean, you you were a a member in arguably the greatest iteration of the Alma Brothers since the original and and you know, the what we've been talking about with Dave Matthews Band, you've done a lot of collaborations with people and artists and other players. Is there is there one collaboration that you've done over the years that sticks out to you as as being really special?
2: I uh, it would be hard for me to pinpoint one uh, because there's been so many, uh, especially with the Alma Brothers, when during during the the 40th anniversary and the 45th anniversary, we just invited special guests constantly uh, and at our, our runs at the at the Beacon Theater. So you know, uh, playing with Eric Clapton two nights in a row. Uh, one night Eric did six songs with us, and one night he did seven, and Believe it or not, that was the first time that Eric and the Allman Brothers had ever played together, which is really amazing considering the history between him and Dwayne. And there's those jams from the Layla sessions with uh, some of the guys sitting in with with Derek and the Dominoes and stuff, but that had never happened on stage. And so one of the highlights for me was uh, after we got done – Rehearsing at the Beacon, the, the the first day, we rehearsed six songs, and Eric said, uh, "That sounds great. Is there anything else we should think about?" And mm, well, I don't know. He said, uh, "What about Little Wing, uh, the the Derek and the Dominos version of Little Wing?" And I, we we're like, "Well, we didn't rehearse it, but I think we know it. We could probably do it. Let's let's try it." And so we rehearsed Little Wing with no preparation. And then we played it, uh, and it had that loose quality that the Derek and the Dominoes record had. I was just watching Eric for his vocal phrasing. I was singing the Bobby Whitlock part and just watching him and trying to sing a few milliseconds behind him because I didn't know what he was going to sing. I knew what was on the record, (laughs) or at least partially. and so that was a huge thrill for me. And there, was, there were so many during that, that time period, you know. Um, and and I think the first time I sat in with Bob Dylan was, was a, a very special thing for me just because I, I'm the, the hugest fan, you know. And and I, I played with Bob a, a few times, but the very first time when we did All Along the Watchtower and, and Highway 61... I, I was just like on another planet, you know. Uh, uh, but I have such fond memories uh, of all those Beacon shows that we did with special guests, and of course, uh, John Paul Jones playing with Government Mule was was fantastic. We uh, we did a bunch of stuff unrehearsed, uh, and it was was amazing. I, I could go on all night because I've been so lucky. <laughs> to have had these opportunities to play with so many people that I uh, love and, and that I grew up listening to. And that's all due to my being in the Allen brothers that opened every door imaginable, you know,
0: That's amazing. Can you talk about playing with, with Dylan a little bit? I, I, I know someone who's played with him relatively recently, and I, I heard some stories about, you know, how you really have to be on your toes playing with, with Bob Dylan. Was, was that your experience? What was it like?
2: Well, I was planning on being on my toes anyway, uh, just because (laughs) I was nervous, you know, uh, as possible uh, playing with Dylan, you know. Uh, One of the guys, maybe Charlie Sexton, one of them said to me, now look, Bob's going to look at you when it's time to solo, start solo, and and then he's going to play with you, but don't get spooked. That doesn't mean he wants you to stop. He just wants to play along with you. I'm like, okay, and that's exactly what happened. I, I, he he gave me the nod. I started soloing, and he got right up in my face and was like soloing with me at the same time. And I was just like, wow, this is like surreal, but it was it was amazing. You know, it was what those moments are supposed to be. I, the the really uncanny thing for me was that. Uh, we were at the Meadowlands in New Jersey and it was sold out and there's 20,000 people. And as I walked out on stage, Bob comes up to me to show me how all along the watchtower goes, just in case I don't know. And I was like, I was like, part of me was just thinking, is this a test or a joke? Like, like if I don't know all along the watchtower, what the, what am I doing here? You know? But it was it was uh, even if he was uh, trying to see my reaction, whatever it was, it it was really a sweet gesture in the way that just in case you never heard this song before, this is how it goes.
1: (laughs) When those opportunities have presented themselves to you and you get the chance to do that, do you still have butterflies and that sort of nerves that you still have to, to get over right before you're about to go perform?
2: Yeah, I don't think that ever goes away. You know, you get used to it, uh, and I think it's good. I think it's it's like a, an athlete, you know, about to go on the field for a game. You know, you, it, there's this anxious energy that motivates you. That without it, uh, I, I don't think you would be in the right headspace, really. Uh, sometimes I wish it was the amps down a little bit, but. Uh, <laughs> For the most part, I think it's it's a necessary thing.
0: I imagine there's been some times too in those situations where you've you've kind of gotten you know thrown in last minute or something where you might not have really known the song or or you know something happens spontaneously and a song gets called that you don't really know. What what do you do in that kind of uh, in that kind of situation?
2: You know, the, the only thing you can do really, and, and it's the right thing, is to just kind of lay out and play really simple things that hopefully are adding to the overall picture because you have to bear in mind even though in your own mind you there might be some pressure for you to be doing something impressive every moment if you're sitting in with another band they got it covered they don't they can do it without you so you know you don't have to worry about playing Uh, all the chords, you don't have to worry about really playing any chords if you don't feel like it. A lot of times I'm just kind of trying to find something that, that fits and stay out of everybody's way. So I usually spend the first minute or so listening to what everybody else is playing, because even if it's a song I know, I might not know the way they're currently approaching it, you know, and they may be playing it, now in a way that is a little more cluttered up, and I don't want to get in the way of that, you know. So uh, a lot of time listening and, and figuring out where where to fit in. Um, and really the most important thing to remember is that the song is going to be fine without your part. So there's no reason to feel like you have to do anything, you know, When it comes time to solo, uh, that's a little bit of a different story. But even then, you know, I'm waiting. I play something, then I'm waiting to see how the drummer responds. And and then then I'll play something else, and I'm waiting to see who else responds to that. Because that's my favorite way of improvising. You know, uh, I've said this a lot, and I'm sure some people are kind of, like, taken aback by it. But my favorite band of all time... is the Miles Davis Quintet with Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter and Tony Williams and Ron Carter, which is odd for a guitar player because they didn't have guitar. But the ultimate improv to me is that band. When you hear one musician play something and then take a breath and see what somebody else is going to play in the space, and that's how they know what they're going to play next. Nobody knows what they're going to do until they listen to what how someone responds to what they just did. Uh, that's my favorite way of approaching improv. And I think once you kind of get bitten by that bug, you, you'd never go back, you know?
0: I think you bring up a really interesting point that uh, of, you said, you know, an odd thing for a guitar player to, to love Miles Davis quintet. I, I don't think it's that odd at all. And especially someone.
2: No, I don't mean it's odd. I don't mean it's odd to love it. I, I'm, I mean, to say that it's your favorite band might be a little weird and and that's that's today maybe not tomorrow.
0: Well yeah, no, I, I, it's a revolving door. But so who who's are you listening to? Like who who have been your biggest influences? Maybe maybe even outside of guitar, you know, you mentioned, you know, Miles Davis and and uh the Miles Davis Quartet quintet, but who else were you listening to coming up or or even now who's really inspiring you musically?
2: Well, I started singing before I started playing guitar. So I was drawn to singers first, Uh, when I was really young, James Brown was my my first hero. But then uh, thanks to my two older brothers, we had tons of soul music in the house, Four Tops The Temptations, Sam and Dave, Otis Redding, Wilson Pickett, uh, Aretha Franklin, Stevie Wonder. And then my oldest brother bought a Sly and the Family Stone record and that kind of changed everything. And then next up was... Jimi Hendrix, Um, but since I fell in love with vocalists early on, I have never lost that gravitational pull that comes from great singers. Uh, I'm really influenced by singers in in every genre that that I think are are masterful, and not just influencing my my singing, but my guitar playing uh, as well, and my sense of space and phrasing. And uh, some of it's because singers have to take a breath. Uh, guitar players don't have to take a breath, but you should take a breath. You should take that cue from a great singer. So all my favorite guitar players are guitar players that sound like they're singing through their instrument or in, in a lot of cases who actually are good singers as well. You know, uh, Because punctuation in space is really the key You know, it's I hear some amazing music sometimes that's made uh, coming from a different direction, but you get inundated. You get beat over the head with uh, information where someone that that takes the proper breath at the proper time maintains your interest level uh, more than somebody who's just uh, playing a barrage of notes.
1: Was that something when you got into guitar because you had focused so much on the singing that came naturally when it became time for you to start taking solos, because I know for myself and a lot of other guitar players, that was something we learned later, like, Oh, you have to breathe. You have to wait and leave space so that you don't sound like you're just trying to race off the edge of the planet. Um, so was that something that just was innate because of your musical
2: experiences I think so it's not something I thought about a lot until later but I was listening to, to uh, all these people all my favorite uh, guitar players when I first started were guitar players that qualified uh, for for that description that had an amazing sense of punctuation so it, it was innate in the way that the people I was most influenced by uh, were giving me that lesson, whether I knew it or not.
0: Man, all right. So going back to the uh, the Almond Brothers playing with with Clapton, are there? I imagine there's some some recordings of that floating around somewhere. Are there any plans to release that stuff at some point?
2: There's definitely recordings, uh, and videos, YouTube, and all that kind of stuff. There's, pr- I think, there's some uh, pretty good quality recordings out there. Maybe even for sale. I, I'm, I, have, I have to double check. On that, but it, it's it's readily available, so to speak. And both nights were were really fantastic. You know, uh, those experiences, uh, going back to those uh, anniversary shows like that, we literally would have a different guest or two or three every night, and it was uh, it was just it was our way of honoring the legacy. Uh, and, you know, because we would do you know, 15 nights at the Beacon or something like that. And it was a way of making every night different and special. So a lot of people uh, came multiple nights. There were, I'm sure, a lot of people that came every night, you know. Uh, and looking back, it was it was some of the most high-level music I've ever experienced uh, in, in the regard of what we're talking about. You know, very little rehearsal. Uh, just everybody having respect for everyone on stage and paying the ultimate amount of attention, uh, of attention to what's going on in the moment. And, you know, we had a rehearsal room set up upstairs for the more complex stuff, but uh, 80% of the music we were making, even with the special guest was us flying by the seat of our pants. You know,
1: When, when you guys are, or in, in, in any situation when you have that number of musicians on stage, do you have the time to, to say, okay, let's hear how this sounds and find like a sonic space for everyone to live in? Or do you just let everyone do their own thing and then give each other the space to let everyone stand out sonically?
2: Well, uh, some people would show up at sound check, which normally the Alman Brothers didn't sound check but if we had uh, people sitting in, if, if they wanted to rehearse or soundcheck, we would. If they wanted to wing it, we would just wing it and maybe do something upstairs. A lot of it was just kind of in the moment, you know? Uh, and, you know, there would be times where it would get a little crowded, but for the most part, the, the music just played itself because we were picking the right people for the right songs uh, most of the time. And the times that it didn't work were rare enough that it was, uh, you know, just the cost of business.
0: Coming back to today, you know, what? Let's get back into the gear world for a second here. What uh, what is your, your rig looking like now with government mule that you're you're taking out live?
2: I have a, a Bradshaw switching system that uh, where I have a controller in front of me. Uh, all the effects and pedals that I'm using are true bypass off, off stage in a drawer somewhere. I'm splitting the rig between uh, two different uh, amps, both that are powering 412 cabinets. Uh, they're not working at the same time. I have uh, usually a, a Homestead 100-watt head that's going through a, a, a cabinet with uh, Vintage 30 Celestians. And then either a Soldano or a Marshall uh, or the big 100 watt Alessandro head that would be going through a, a 412 cabinet with 75 watt uh, Celestians. In the studio, I use that same setup. The, the Homestead could also be a Diaz. It could also be a, a, a Vox AC30. The dirtier head, if we call it that, could be in any of several old marshals uh it really just depends uh on the, the song and what we're looking for the, the soldano uh is my modified soldano that that i've had since 1989 when i joined the allman brothers that uh, amp was used exclusively on the first mule record and a lot on the second and third mule records so if i want to go back for that sound, that's that's where I go. Uh, the longer Mule stayed together and the more we continued to record, the more different amps and sounds I, I would gravitate toward. You know, in my uh, effects rack, so to speak, um, there is a, a, an octaver. There is a, a, a Hughes and Kettner rotosphere, which is a Leslie simulator. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There is a... Bradshaw stereo tremolo, couple or three different delays. Um, There's a discombobulator envelope filter. I have a signature wah-wah that I use and uh, I'm sure I'm leaving something out, but you know, most of the sounds are just straight into the amp sounds. In uh, the Almond Brothers, I always plugged straight in and didn't use any effects. In Government Mule, I started out that way. But since it was a trio, uh, the longer we stayed together, the more I would incorporate a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Uh, but still, most of the sounds are, are just like straight amp sounds.
0: So when you're playing live with those different amps, are you, are you switching between them or are you blending them on stage or a combination of the two?
2: They're never... On at the same time, uh, I'm switching back and forth. The Homestead is the cleaner one, and uh, the Soldano or the Marshall is the dirtier one. And uh, it would be too much to have them both on uh, at, at the same yeah. time. I, I do that in the studio sometimes, and it's it sounds great. Uh, but on on stage, one at a time uh, is better.
0: Yeah, you're moving a lot of air. Can can you tell me about the Homestead amp? I'm not sure terribly familiar with them i I know marcus king was playing them for a while uh years and years ago but so you said you're using it more as a clean amp what what is it based off of
2: well it's not clean in the way it, it sounds like what we were talking about with the old gibson amps i would set it virtually the same way i would set a skylark or or something like that where if you have the guitar all the way up it's breaking up quite a bit but a lot of times my sound is the guitar down a number or two. Uh, very seldom am I all the way up. Um, Homestead is an extension of Diaz. Uh, Caesar Diaz made the, uh, this great amp that I used for a long, long time. I still do occasionally, but that amp's been around the world and, and had the crap beaten out of it so many times. Peter McMahon, who uh, kind of, worked under Caesar for a while, and then when Caesar died, he continued Diaz for a while, and then he changed the company to Homestead and started changing some stuff and uh, incorporating his own models and, and, and ideas. I'm still using his amps a lot, and they're very similar to the Caesar Diaz amps. Uh, I look at it like a, you know, one side is Fendery and the other side is is uh, Marshally as far as Uh, If it's the Homestead and the Soldano or whichever two amps I'm using at any uh, given time, that's kind of what I'm looking for.
1: Well, as we kind of wrap this up, uh, can you speak on the upcoming Dark Side of the Mule, where you guys are going to play some Floyd? Um,
2: Yeah, this will be the first time we've done it in a long time, and it'll be the last time we ever do it, which... I'm really excited to do it again. This will be the most dates that we've ever done uh, as Dark Side of the Mule. Dark Side of the Mule for us is not playing the record Dark Side of the Moon. It's us doing whatever Pink Floyd we want to do, but it does include a lot of Dark Side of the Moon as well. It started out in 2008 for Halloween. We were faced with the challenge of what our – thematic crazy Halloween show was going to be because we do a a different theme every Halloween. You know, we've done Hendrix, Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Neil Young, uh, the who, uh, we we've done a, a lot of different Halloween themes, but we did Floyd in 2008 and we brought in a laser show and, uh, surround sound and, and the whole bit at the orpheum theater in boston and the crowd really responded and and kind of demanded that we do it again so we did it again and it kind of turned into something that none of us really expected so we released that show as an official release which was a kind of a weird choice to make but there was a lot of demand to do it um and then there was this constant pressure to bring back dark side of the mule so when when we were aware that this was the 50th anniversary of dark side of the moon we decided this would be a good time to do it you know we do uh, we do a set of government mule and then if we have time we take a short break if we don't have time we just segue right in to a long set of, of, of Floyd uh, and it's it's really fun you know we don't copy what they did, but we pay a lot of respect to it. And we, you know, we make it our own song by song, some cases more than others, but, uh, we're very respectful of, of that music, but we're, we're not here to be uh, a karaoke, you know, but at, at the same time, we probably res- pay more homage to those, uh, versions than we do, with just about anything we would cover just because it, it's the appropriate thing to do. But uh, I love when we stretch out and get completely away from them as well. You know?
1: Yeah. I talk about a guitar player that definitely has a lot of breath uh, <laughs> and, and space in his music. That's a sure. challenge
2: to play with that <laughs> yes. much punctuation, you know, for someone like myself uh, who, you know, I'm not a over animated player but compared to Gilmore possibly but to play with that much punctuation takes so much restraint I feel like I'm uh, stuck in third gear but Mm -hmm. that's what he does so well that's why all those solos and, and hooks are embedded in our heads like they are because the his sense of melody and his sense of space is just fantastic
0: So how are you approaching those solos? Because they're so iconic. I mean, you can sing all of them, basically. But you, like you just said, Government Mule is not a karaoke band. And and so I imagine you want to put the Warren Haynes touch on it. So what's your thought process like for that?
2: For for the shorter ones, I just kind of cop the essence uh, of the solos. Um, For the longer ones, the same thing, but more of my own uh, take on it, you know. Like if in Shine on Crazy Diamond and Echoes and stuff like that, where the solos are really long, I take the liberty of just playing with Gilmore influence, but not copying uh, any of the actual phrases. Whereas something like money or time or something like that, I'll play a little closer to what I remember, but I, I never did go learn them. That That's kind of not, not my thing. But... I'm very influenced by that stuff. So uh, it, it comes out in a, in a way that at least I think is appropriate. You know,
1: <laughs> It's kind of hard to escape playing something in a way that it was on the record because it's so part of your memory. And if you're playing that song, sometimes you just probably just can't help it. Yeah, you know,
2: I would say 85% of the solos that I play on stage in the Allman Brothers and, and in Government Mule, were improvised every night. Some closer to the originals than than others, but there were a, f- a few solos, like the solo, uh, the slide solo in the middle of "End of the Line" and stuff like that. That even I, I would even play my own solo because it sounds like a part. It sounds like part of the mm-hmm. the song. Uh, yeah. And there are some songs like "Banks of the Deep End" with Government Mule where I still kind of do that like uh, i play something similar to what's on the record just because i th- think that that's what people are hearing in their heads uh but for the most part my job is to kind of take it somewhere different every night and I- i'm lucky to have that job
0: it's good gig if you can get it man that's yeah
2: uh, <laughs> my dad used to say good work if you can get it uh
0: yeah <laughs> awesome well warren thank you so much for uh for joining us today man like i said it really is an honor to to get to talk to you and uh to have you on the show we'll have links to uh dark side of the mule and the government mules tour dates coming up uh, down in the description box and in the show notes here so uh yeah thanks so much man my pleasure i enjoyed it thanks warren man that was uh that was something
1: he is, is i've always known he's a nice guy for sure but just the the amount of work that this guy has put in and, and all, the, all the amazing things he's done and the people he's played with is it's just, it's incredible. It's so remarkable. He,
0: he basically has a guitar player's dream gig. Like, what, yeah. what more could you ask for? Playing the Elmer Brothers, Government Mule, Bob Dylan, sitting in with every great artist of our generation. I mean, it's like, what more could you ask for? Yeah. uh,
1: And great solo records too. Like, so like there are some guitarists out there and I'm not naming names, but they do solo stuff and you're like, okay, I kind of wish it was still the band, but like Warren, like I really like man in motion and and some of his other solo stuff. It's like, it's really, it's fun and it's enjoyable. And I think part of this is circling back to what he was saying is he was a singer first. mm -hmm. And I think that's a thing that not every like guitar players, guitar player can claim that title. Yeah. But because Warren is such a good singer, it's like, it just makes everything all the better. But yeah, it's a, it's an honor to speak with him.
0: Yeah, man. Absolutely. Well, like I said, we're going to have links to Dark Side of the Mule and everything in the description of this video, as well as our show notes. And unfortunately, I'm looking at the Atlanta date, which is August 12th, and I'm going to be out of town, <laughs> of course, playing mm. a show, uh, which legitimately bums me out. But um, yeah. If you are interested, since it's the last time they're doing Dark Side of the Mule, I really feel like you should go check it. And Jason Bonham's Led Zeppelin Evening is opening, which—I mean, come on, what? man!
1: What? I know. Yeah. I'm, I'm if they're coming close to me, I'll I'll try to try to make it out. I don't go to much like live music these days because you know parent and all that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds like a sounds like a whale of a good time.
0: <laughs> all right, chill.
1: <laughs> I yes. got one.
0: Okay, you go, go first
1: because I have to move to get mine.
0: My... All right. Mine is the Dymo <laughs> Organizer Express Label Maker. Okay. This is one of those old school like uh, label makers. I don't know. What do you call that? This um, – it makes these types of labels here. I, I,
1: it's like a, a punch sort yeah. of Yeah.
0: I, I, years ago, I decided to take the Casey Neistat approach of just labeling everything because my ADHD, It's it just makes things – better and all my hard drives i name after star wars characters so this is darth Tyrannus. uh but it makes these really cool labels and they're just to me these are way more aesthetically pleasing than your typical like uh i've got the the brother uh, the brother p touch labeler up uh, there yeah that that just Uh, looks uh, so like focus there it goes like that Yeah. yeah not cool this is cool.
1: I, I love Dymo label makers. I love them so much. I, this is a Dymo, but it's it's like a printer. And yeah. this sticks a lot better. Uh, but there is something about seeing that on something that it can be just it, a box, like just an aluminum box mm-hmm. and you put a Dymo label on it. and You're like, oh shit, that looks pretty cool.
0: <laughs> yeah, it looks rad, man. It looks rad. And they're cheap. This is like, I don't know, 10 yeah. bucks on Amazon with a couple of rolls of the, of the tape and they if it's break, not sticking though. yeah they do they do break but you know just get another one it's it's way cheaper than the electronic ones it looks way cooler um and they'll stick to stuff i mean this this thing has not come off of this hard drive you know since i put it on there like two years ago
1: i'm used to my dymo labels on all of my parts drawers which are that uh, have lived out in heat and uh, yeah. there's nothing more frustrating than walking out to like all your like capacitors and resistors and they're they're in order and they're labeled and then all the labels have fallen off and you're like, Oh shit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's lame. <laughs> all this but stuff? on the, the plus side, it looks like something from Star Trek, like a phaser or something.
1: It totally looks some like kind of a phaser of some sort. Yes. Yeah. And I, you know, I love that.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it's cool, man. I just have it. I just have it laying around here and I just put labels on everything because I can. So it's great.
1: Yeah. I'm, you're just going to start labeling everything in the house. Like Rhett's yeah. fork. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> my mug. <laughs> Door. <laughs> um, yeah, the bathroom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my shill, I've not. I've been sneaking this into stuff, and I'm just going to share it. So I got this guitar. I'm going to scoot back so we can fit it in the frame here. I got this guitar a while back. So some of you remember I got a '73 Les Paul Deluxe that had been modded when I went to do the JHS show mm-hmm. in the Firebird, and like that was a cool guitar. But I, you know, this is. It's a '70s list, Paul. It was, you know, it was neat, but I wasn't in love with it. And so I thought I'm going to throw it up on Craigslist and all the spaces and see what, you know, someone would trade me. And a guy sent me a message and sh- sent a picture of this, and I was like, uh, "What's that?" And he said, "Ah, oh, it's some like '54 reissue from the, the the demo shop." And I said, well, "That's not a, that's a '54 reissue, but okay, bring it by." And he loved. The, the guitar, the 73 Les Paul was like both his guitar teacher's guitar, and he had a, mm. a really distinct memory of them. It was very important to him, and and he loved it. And so we just did a swap for this, and this is actually a, a 58 reissue, but with a rap tail. Nice. And I was like, I mean, you guys know I love Raptail Les Paul's, and I put these are the Seymour Duncan Antiquity JB and Jazz pickups in it so it like it rips through the soldano nice. it's it's so awesome but he said um not to share it he got it for a really good deal he was like don't share it for a while and i didn't but i, I just i want to use it so yeah here it is it's not a problem i'm not going to get rid of it cuz it's cool and you guys know i like these sort of less paul's so that's my my third custom shop that i have currently that is so. a good one Nice. it's cool. It's and it has it has the it's a it's a 20 uh 2022, so it's the neck's not too not too unwieldy, you know.
0: Yeah, I feel like they've gotten that better in the last couple of years with like the R8s and stuff specifically. Totally, yeah. Um and the R9s how not having the massive massive baseball deck baseball bat necks cuz the originals weren't that big, you know.
1: Mm-mm. So No, the, I think that's the most shocking thing about vintage guitars is the necks are way smaller than most people yeah. think. But nice. um uh, <laughs> Yeah. So before we go, thanks again to our patrons over on Patreon. We appreciate all you guys for supporting the channel. And if you want to learn about it, go look at the link in the descriptions and check out all the tiers for yourself.
0: And thank you to Sweetwater for sponsoring us today. Links are in the description. Check out sweetwater.com for uh, basically anything you need, guitar related, music related, production related. Now, even I will say uh, they're getting into the content creation space, which for me is really exciting because Uh, You can get, you know, all kinds of stuff you need to, you know, maybe this is an episode we need to do actually for a lot of guitar players that are wanting to get into, you know, posting themselves making uh, on reels or TikTok or Uh, that kind of uh, stuff. It it can be kind of an intimidating world, the video production side, melding audio and video together and getting things to sync up and look good and sound good. For your social media stuff uh sweetwater is doing all that stuff now as well so thanks to them for sponsoring today's episode links are in the description uh and thank you guys for watching please subscribe yeah. hit the bell be notified whenever we're posting new episodes and uh give this episode a thumbs up really appreciate it thanks everybody see y'all